Well, good morning again. My name is Josh, as I said. I'm one of the pastors here, and I'm glad to be here with you this morning while Aaron is away, uh, getting some uh, much-needed vacation time. Uh, we're in this uh, series, this week three of this series, what we've called uh, Mirror Images. We're calling this a can't-miss series. We're covering some heavy topics, and I would encourage you, if you've not been here for each message in this series or you have to miss at some point, you can go online and check out our podcast and really listen to these messages from any one of our five physical locations. Um, but thank you for being here today. Thank you for jumping into this with us. We do think that uh, being here for all five weeks will give you the fullest picture of what we're trying to work through in this series. And though we certainly cannot answer every question in one series, we're going to do our best to give what is most needed. Now, I'm going to show you a picture here on the screen, um, and I don't want you to respond out loud, all right? So uh, here's a picture on the screen. I want you to think, just think about what each of these things have in common, all right? We've got Santa Claus, Easter Bunny, and the Tooth Fairy. Um, just think about that for a second. Now, I also know that as parents, we take different approaches to things like this. All right, and I don't, I'm not here to knock anyone's approach. I know that some just jump both feet in to some or all of these, and some don't at all because why would you? Uh, but here's the effect on children, just one of the effects that, that uh, happens to our children. When children get a hold of the correct information about any one of these things, do you know what they automatically turn into? Truth police. Truth police, they make it their, no one even has to tell them to do it. They just make it their goal to make sure that everyone knows whether or not, I won't finish that sentence. They make it their goal to, to, so that everyone that they know knows what's going on with these things. It's just kind of how it goes, and they end up causing problems and hurting people, ushering parents into conversations they weren't ready to have and answering questions they weren't ready to respond to. And I have a fear in this series that somehow, because we are going to the Bible, God's word, to get information about the things we're talking about, we will unintentionally weaponize ourselves with information. All right? And rather than learning and understanding and discovering so that we can lean into and engage with a culture who needs to hear from God's word, we will end up filling up our magazines and our clips with ammunition so that we can fire off the correct information on everyone else. And I'm just urging all of us not to do that. Knowledge puffs up, Paul says in 1 Corinthians. Love builds up. Knowledge for sure is important. But knowledge without love, Paul says, is nothing. So as we get into God's word to discover what it says, and we will, I just want our approach, as we learned in week one, Aaron so clearly said our approach to life is grace and truth. So that is what we're looking to do today. In fact, um, as pastors, we put down goals for this series. Let me show you the goals for this series, because of all series, really it's true of any of them, but... This series really, really needs it. One, to be learners, not judges. We're talking about some difficult things. We want to lean in and assume there are things we don't know. We want to learn them. Two, we want to develop a burden for people who sin or struggle differently than we do. And sometimes that's the dividing line. This is why families splinter, friendships end because someone ends up sinning or struggling just in a different way than we do, and we can't wrap our mind around why they would make those choices or be dealing with the things you're dealing with, and we don't want to do that. We want to develop a burden 
for people who are different from us. Number three, to encourage our posture to be that of compassion for people rather than disdain. Church history is not flattering on the church when it comes to wrestling with hot topics, controversial issues. We want to make sure that we are developing the love and compassion for people that Jesus had rather than developing a disdain for people and for to equip us to engage in others' lives. We are not talking about these things so that we can build thicker walls and, and build silos and stay within them. Uh, we need to be out in culture engaging with people, showing them the love and hope and grace and truth of Jesus Christ. And that's what we're looking to do. In fact, as I said, churches haven't handled topics like this very well in the past. Issues regarding biblical authority. Issues regarding identity. You'll cover that in a couple weeks um, or maybe even next week. Um, issues regarding sexuality. Issues regarding marriage and issues regarding singleness. We, we don't do well. We throw the book at people. We throw labels on people. We put them in a category. We talk about the, the issue rather than the people. And we want to be a church and we want to be people who are all about people making a difference in people's lives. And I think we need to understand the distinction between making a point and making a difference. And I think we need to choose to make a difference rather than a point. In Scripture, we see Jesus lean in to hurt abused and marginalized people. He made space for those people whom others ignored, abused, or marginalized. He reserved his harshest words toward the self-righteous. So I think we need to be very careful how we wade into these heavy topics. And as, as I said, in week one, Aaron covered with you, grace and truth is our approach to life. And so my goal today is not to give you ammunition to fire, but rather information to help you respond according to knowledge, with love and compassion to all people, regardless of your differences or struggles. And remember, we're asking you to commit to work to be here or at least listen in on every message in th this series. In fact, if you do have to miss or you want to learn more, we have a uh, website for you. You can, uh, if you know, as Jeff said, if you know technology, you can just scan that little QR code. This takes you to uh, bridgewater.church slash message resources, and we've got resources up, updating every week as we handle each of these topics. And so you can go to see where we're learning from and where you can go to learn further about any one of the subjects that we'll be talking about. Today we're focusing specifically on sexual identity, specifically even more narrow than that, transgenderism. We're talking about uh, transgender. So before we begin this talk, let me just quickly identify the term transgender for you, and I'll show it to you on the screen. Transgender is an umbrella term for the many ways in which people might experience and or present and express, that is to live out, their gender identities differently from people who sense of gender identity is congruent with their biological sex. This definition is taken from a book called Embodied, written by Preston Sprinkle. In fact, we have a, a few copies located at the Welcome Center. If you want to press more into this topic, you can head to the Welcome Center. Uh, these books are available. There's a very limited number, but they're available to you for free. All right, so if you're walking out of here and want to chase this down more, we have those resources available for you. That's a loaded definition. Let me, let me help you understand what it includes. It includes a man or a boy identifying as a woman or a girl. A woman or girl identifying as a man or a boy. The idea of gender fluidity, that is I can sort of go back and forth between what gender I feel like I am. It's 
thinking of yourself as a different gender than that of your biological sex. Now, I recognize right after reading that definition, just reading that sits heavy and will cause a divide in a room like this. It will expose a divide that's really there. For some, you cannot wrap your mind around this being true or a legitimate issue. For others of you, it's way too close to home. For some of you, you think this is just an agenda by the media or someone's personal agenda, and others of you are wondering how to respond to a person whom you love who is wrestling with these very things. There is a divide, but can I just ask us all commit to learn before we respond? This is a hot topic, no doubt, in our culture and society. It makes headlines on news outlets and social media outlets. It's celebrated by some. It's vilified by others. And what we're going to do is I'm going to try to help us learn how we arrived at this cultural moment. How did we even get here? For some of you, you can remember a time when this did not exist. It wasn't a thing. It was never talked about. And if it was, it was in, in silence and secrecy. It just wasn't a place we went. And certainly if you had these thoughts or struggles, you didn't tell anyone. You just, you, you quietly lived on with your pain, with your difficulty. Today, we are more than talking about it. So I want to work back through history to try to be clear and efficient. We can't cover everything, but I think we can do some work to help us understand why we're having this conversation today. We'll hit some highlights shed some light on where we are as a society, and then we'll do what we always need to do, and that is go back to God's word to see what the Bible says about this topic. We'll conclude with what it might look like to respond to our culture and to individual people the way that Jesus would have. Well, that's, that's my aim. We'll see how it goes. I appreciate you hanging with me. Um, how did transgender identities become such a huge topic in our world? Let's first talk about the old world, all right? The old world was like this. Morality was traditional, like it was handed down basically from a Judeo-Christian understanding. There was a God awareness in our culture, and morality was just assumed, and anyone who was immoral stuck out, like we easily recognized it. And so if you were going to live in, in an immoral way, you had to keep that private and to yourself. Morality was widely agreed upon, certainly not perfectly, but widely agreed upon. It was based on your community, your traditions, or your religion. These things were handed down. If, if you were a Presbyterian when you were young, then you're still a Presbyterian. If you were a Baptist, you remain a Baptist. If you were something else, you remain that, because that's just who you are. That's just how you grew up. That's just what you did, and it was a big deal decades ago for some to step out of that, for parents to allow their children to marry others that didn't have an identical faith or religious background. It was a big deal. There was a general consensus that a higher power did exist. People had a God awareness, and our identity, who we were, was just given to us. It was given, like you just kind of know who you are, and it's based off of where you're from and what your family's like and what your mom and dad did and how many siblings you had and, and those kinds of things. We entered then into a gray zone, and I'll get more into this here in a minute. Here are the gray areas that are in the, tran in the transition between the old world and the new world. We're going to have one more column here in a minute. 
But what began to happen was morality became subjective. So you remember the, maybe you remember the movement of postmodernism, where truth is not objective and fixed. Truth is changing, and your truth is your truth, and my truth is my truth, and I can let you have yours, and I can have mine, and even if they're different, we're both right. That began to happen. Some of you are old enough to remember hearing this stuff, and you're just thinking, what is going on? The wheels are falling off. An overemphasis on sex, the sexual revolution, did not help, but really was a result of a lot of this way of thinking through the 60s and 70s. And then people began asking questions that were never asked, doing things that were never at least spoken about. Sex and gender became uh, topics of debate, and, and what you were and, and what you could be began to be questioned. And then we have the rise of transgenderism and gender dysphoria, a term that I'll define for you in a couple of minutes. Now we're in the new world. New world, and this is where we're living, okay? This is where we're, if you're wondering what is happening in the world, here's, here's what it is. Truth is subjective. It depends on you and your experience. Experience is truth. Well, however you think of it is, is truth. Expressive individualism, we'll get into that here in just a minute. I'm now the power. I am now supreme. I call the shots. And identity is found, and it's self-defined. Now, here's what's crazy. We're, we're living, we're living in, in this gray zone, but we've got a couple generations here. An older generation, basically anyone above 24 years old, may be prone to think, what in the world is going on? I'll, but I can see that. 29 to 24 years old, this is just the way it is. They have grown up like this. We've made the switch from truth being objective and coming from a source outside of us, that would be God, to subjective truth, where now it comes from me. The old world was just that now, the old world. The new world, my truth is truth, your truth is truth. We each determine our own. Though mankind was plunged into sin as a result of Adam and Eve's disobedience, for generations there still remained a God awareness and even a God accountability. That is going away. We are no longer in our minds accountable to anyone but ourselves. Man has taken center stage, crowded God out. We've been influenced over the centuries by people more than we'd like to think we have been. People, great thinkers and philosophers like Rousseau, the Romantics, Marx, Nietzsche, and Freud, just to name a few. So we are living in this gray zone, really on the cutting edge. Generation Z, ages 9 to 24, is on the cutting edge of this kind of thinking. This is the generation where the iPhone's in your pocket. The internet is just an assumption. It's not a question. It's we assume we're going to have it. And common stereotypes used to be what often made a man a man and a woman a woman. Now stereotypes are just blown to bits. And I'm not calling that a bad thing or a good thing. I'm just saying it's a thing. And whereas we used to attach our identity to the community in which we belonged, we now, the, the supreme value is to find your own and detach yourself from any community and form your own. We're entering the age of expressive individualism. We are here. Let me define this for you. You might see it show up. Expressive individualism holds that each person has a unique core of feeling and intuition that should unfold or be expressed if individuality is to be realized. And individuality is very important now because the focus is on the individual and not on my community, not on my 
tradition. In other words, not the social group, not the traditional code of morality. It's the individual now. He or she is the center of the universe. And the goal of a flourishing life and expressive individualism is to live out the truest sense of who I am on the inside, on the outside. Who I feel myself to be is who I truly am, and that must be expressed in my external world, or I'm being inauthentic to who I really am. And you, your responsibility is to affirm and to celebrate whatever it is that I choose to live out. If you don't, you hate me. This is the world of expressive individualism. There is not effort to preserve the sense of order or of community. The old way was to hold the community as of greater value than the individual. Now the individual is the supreme value. Long as I don't hurt anybody. And again, Generation Z, ages 9 to 24, is the first generation to think this way by default. There's been a worldwide moral and cultural shift, and they are on the cutting edge of it. This is sensitive to me because all four of our children are between 9 and 24. This is the air they breathe. This is the water they are drinking. And sexuality and gender is the main stage where these shifts play out. You saw the, the, the columns. This shows up in no bigger area than gender and sexuality. In fact, the words sex and gender used to be synonymous. Now they are beginning to be used interchangeably. Whereas sex refers to your biology, nowadays gender is how we give expression to that reality. It might surprise you that the most basic and widely agreed upon definition of gender today is this, the psychological, social, and cultural aspects of being male or female. Notice what it's not talking about. It's not talking about biology. It's not talking about DNA. But it's from these roles we play out our identity and culture as men and women, and stereotypes then emerge. So most of the time, men are like this. Most of the time, women are like this. But it is true that not all biological men and biological women fit into those stereotypes. Does that mean then that they should cease to be a man or cease to be a woman? Not according to Scripture. But you see, Scripture is not the authority for people today. Our own thoughts and feelings about ourselves are the authority. And it's not that people have never questioned their identity or even their gender. But our society now propels people to do that, to discover your truest self. So is the tomboy really just a boy? My parents, or even me growing up, a tomboy was a tomboy. That's it. Today's generation thinks maybe the tomboy is actually a boy. This girl can throw better than the other boys. She's faster. She's stronger. She's smarter. Maybe she's actually a boy. This is, this is common today. People are now confused about their identity, their gender identity, because they don't feel their inner self is in line with their psychological self. And so they wrestle with something called gender dysphoria. Let me define that for you. Gender dysphoria is when someone experiences a conflict between their biology and what gender they believe they are. This is a tough one. I've interacted with people of all ages and generations about this that I could possibly interact with. 
and I get wildly different responses from one end of the spectrum to the other. Here's what you need to know. Gender dysphoria is real and it's traumatizing. A person in this situation really thinks that he or she is, should be, or would feel better as the gender different from that of their biological sex. Let's just take a quick check right now to identify what thoughts or emotions are running internally right now. Let's just make sure we commit to keep learning. For those who are familiar with the Bible, do you know or can you remember in Genesis 3 what Adam and Eve did when they sinned, when they disobeyed God? They covered and they hid. Right? They covered and they hid. That is because spiritual sin has physical and psychological side effects. Sin distorted their view of their bodies. And gender dysphoria is a distorted view of ourselves to the point that we can believe we are a different gender than that which our biology would indicate. And now gender dysphoria is not a sin in and of itself, but a tragic result of sin entering our world. And I will tell you, those who wrestle with gender dysphoria, wish they didn't. We don't go hunting for this. And why is sexual identity and gender such a big deal in our culture? Let me give you some more reasons. Sex and sexuality are everywhere. Do you know that 80% of television content contains sexual content? 80% of what's on TV contains sexual content. Do you know that one-third, that is 33.333% of daily searches on the internet for porn are for pornography involving teenagers? Do you know that porn sales bring in more revenue every year than the MLB, that's Major League Baseball, NFL, National Football League, and NBA, National Basketball Association, combined? That's over $100 billion dollars. 75% of porn sites are free, no charge. 85% of young men and 50% of young women watch porn on a regular basis. And the United States is the largest producer and exporter of pornography worldwide. It is everywhere. At this point, our hearts should be broken Also at this point, we should recognize that if we are part of the people who are consuming or viewing pornography, we are a part of the problem of why sex sex and sexuality is such a big deal and why this is getting so messed up. So what we have is a generation that's been duped into believing that sex and identity are the exact same thing. We've allowed others to tell us who we are or or we have listened to ourselves in determining our identity. And a problem with that is I often feel or do things that do not define me. Do you not? How I feel does not determine my identity. How I feel changes. How I view myself changes. The way others view me changes. You may have been told that you're smart. You might have been told that you're stupid. You might have been told that you're an athlete. And that may have been true of you at one point, but it may not be true now. How many of us were athletes but are no longer? I just played pickup basketball yesterday. I can tell you I was an athlete. (laughs) I never knew I had asthma. 
I couldn't breathe. And I, it must have been, I thought I must have played for an hour. I looked at my watch because I logged a workout and it said eight minutes. <laughs> People all the time tell us who we are. We all the time have either positive or negative or neutral feelings or thoughts about who we are. And sometimes we're tempted to believe them. Sometimes we're tempted to believe ourselves. But even your view of yourself shifts and changes over time. Neither others' opinions nor yours of yourself is reliable. Only God's word on who you are gives you life and helps you to flourish and be who you were meant to be. I am more than my feelings and I am more than my desires and I am so grateful for that. You are more than your desires. Your desires are just that, desires. But they are not your identity. Your identity is given to you from God and is unchanging. By definition, identity does not change. It remains the same, regardless of external circumstances. Look up the word. It's the Latin root identitas, and that's exactly what it means. It's one and the same, regardless of what else is happening. My sexual desire is not even my identity. You'll be covering identity here next week. So, in today's world, how I am has become who I am. You catch that? In the mid-1800s, when atheism was gaining steam, think Freud, okay? Identity began to be determined by what you feel and how you behave rather than who you truly are in essence. So, it has become, identity has become subjective. Whenever how you feel is the authority, it leads to great personal and cultural confusion. Out of this, atheism and self-expression came depression, confusion, nihilism, existentialism, where experience becomes God. Experience becomes truth. And now, because sex has become ultimate, I attach my identity and even my essence to my sexuality, to my sexual desires. So if I feel a certain way or have certain attractions, I must be that way in my essence, we think. But determining who you are is more a theological issue than it is a psychological issue. The question we should be asking is, who does my creator say that I am? Because a problem we run into is that a flawed view of who I am results in a flawed personal ethic. If I mess up who I am and where I came from and how I determine right and wrong and morality becomes messed up as well. So we are in a world now, in a culture that is deviated from God's design, and any deviation from God's design brings pain, confusion, and chaos. According to God's design, he made us with our gender, and that gender is fixed. I'm male because God made me that way. A woman is female because God made her that way on purpose, not because I fit a stereotype or subscribe to a cultural norm. Gender is confused today because God is not the authority in our culture. Now, please listen. If you're 25 years of age or older, the younger generation did not ask to grow up into this cultural climate. They're just here. And they're dealing with it. And we have the choice of whether to harass them or to help them. As followers of Jesus... It's incumbent upon us to lean in and help them. 
Now, for sure, some have fully embraced a transgender identity or another identity in defiance of God. But most research shows and personal experience also shows that most are dealing with unwanted thoughts and feelings about their identity and their sexuality. Whether they're defiant or they're just struggling, both need Jesus. So let's go back to the beginning and take a look at what God said through the writer of Genesis. Genesis chapter 1 is where we're going to be. Starting in verse 26, we've been hovering around this passage here for the last couple of weeks. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over all the livestock and all the wild animals, over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living thing that moves on the ground. What do we see here? Here's what we see. We see God, the creator, reasoning, considering, declaring, announcing really what he was going to do. He was going to create people, going to create human beings. It's interesting, this is the first time in the Bible that male and female is emphasized. It's actually a little bit of a Hebrew poem. He repeats himself. He made them male and female. In the image of God, he created them male and female. He created them. It's mentioned before, but not emphasized like this. So therefore, we need to lean in and say, this must be significant. Because what he's communicating is that both male and female are image bearers of God. God made male and female in his image and by his design. So our first key truth from this passage is this. God intentionally and exclusively designed male and female. What does God's word have to say? This is what God's word has to say about this. We could say it this way. Sexual differentiation is not a social construct. It's intrinsic to who God made us. In his image. Sex is a biological reality. It's how God created mankind. He only pronounced creation very good after he made male and female. So God created Adam a man on purpose because he wanted him that way. God made Eve a woman a female on purpose because he wanted her that way. It was for God to tell Adam and Eve who they were, not for Adam and Eve to discover who they were. Their identity had been given to them by God. They were designed different, different by design. Preston Sprinkle, in his book Embodied, writes this, a person is biologically male and female based on four things, and this scientists agree on this. One, the presence or absence of a Y chromosome in your DNA. Two, internal reproductive organs. Three, external sexual anatomy. And four, endocrine systems that produce secondary sex characteristics. This is what separates a man from a woman. And God made it, wired it, baked into creation that way. And when we follow God's design and honoring the created distinction of male and female, both made in God's image with gender difference, it provides a pathway toward flourishing in life. This is what's recorded at the end of Genesis chapter 1. Look at verse 31. God saw all he had made, and it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. This was the way God wanted it, and it was very good, which leads to our second truth. Honoring God's design leads to flourishing. 
Honoring God's good design and creation leads to flourishing, though I'd have to admit it doesn't always feel that way. Living according to God's design doesn't always feel good, at least not at first. We know how difficult it is to obey, to do what's right when we don't want to. To commit to tell the truth, even in a pressure-filled situation. That is honoring God's design. When we do, we flourish. The differences God made in night and day, land and sea, land and sky, male and female, were all very good. Not just what he made, but how he made it. And it would flourish by design. So all people are made in God's image according to his design. And his design included both male and female. When those two parts come together in honor of their inherent differences, mankind flourishes. In fact, the only way for mankind to continue is for those two biological sexes to come together and procreate. And this is exactly what God commands Adam and Eve to do, to multiply, to fill the earth and subdue it. This was his design for them as image bearers, and God said that design was very good. But this is not the world we live in today. The world we live in today does not subscribe to that truth. We said in week one that God is the source of life and the, the Bible is the authority for our life. But we have to declare that because it's not accepted in the culture we live in today. They're not universally held truths. The world we live in today has been broken and tainted and polluted and distorted by sin. It and its people are not functioning the way God has designed. Even Adam and Eve did not honor their design for long. You see, God made them. He was the authority. But in a moment of temptation, in a moment of weakness, Eve decided she might know what was better. Satan came in the form of a serpent to tempt her to disobey. She bought it and gave in. She gave some of the fruit that they were commanded not to eat to Adam who was with her. He gave in. They thought it would be to their advantage to do things their way. And all it did is usher in destruction and pain. You see, Eve and Adam thought God was holding them back from all they could be. God was actually sparing them from what they would become through his commands. So they broke God's command. They ate from the tree. They deviated from God's design and ushered sin into the world. Look at what the writer of Genesis records for us in Genesis chapter 3, verses 7 through 10. Then the eyes of both of them were opened. They realized they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. Which brings us to our third truth. And that is this, deviation from God's design leads to pain. Though I would say it doesn't always feel that way. When you and I choose to do what we want in the face of what God has prohibited, it feels good. A little sense of freedom, a little rebellion, a little just calling the shots, a little doing what I want does feel good for a moment. Even the writer of Hebrews recognizes that sin is pleasant. There's pleasure in it for a moment but it is outlived and overshadowed by the destruction that it brings. Eve was tempted and deceived. Adam chose. Both were wrong. Both were accountable. How did this happen? It happened because they doubted that the way that God made things was actually good. 
They played God with their identity. He would not be their authority anymore. They would be their own authority. Satan led Eve to question God's word. What did he actually say? And God's intentions. Is God really working for my good here? Their doubt opened the door for pride. Pride set the table for sin. Sin came into the world. And what were the results? They covered, they hid, and they experienced pain. But I need to take a moment here and address this for those wrestling with their sexual identity, gender dysphoria, transgenderism at all, no matter what you do, there's going to be pain. It will be painful to resist what your body and mind tells you you need to be doing. It is hard to resist. And if you choose to live into that identity and give into it, it will be equally difficult for you. Because people around you will not understand. They will not help you. They will judge you. It is a lose-lose except for the fact that we have this truth that honoring God's good design leads to flourishing. And like the rest of us in any other category of sin or struggle, if we just choose to trust God that what he says is true, we will get the blessing because God's blessings are never found outside of his boundaries. So they covered and they hid, and now that's the world we live in. Here we are. So what are we supposed to do? What would a follower of Jesus do? What should our response be? I need to circle back and say our response should make sure to avoid the children who are the truth police when they figure out what's going on with Santa Claus, the Easter Bunny, and Tooth Fairy. It is not our job to throw truth at people. It is not our job to ignite a truth bomb. We must refuse to take that posture. We've got to commit to God's truth and to proclaiming it and living it out in a way that does not repel the people we are trying to reach. For us, truth must not be a weapon, but an anchor. I want to share with you this quote from the book Embodied, the one that's available for you. Preston Sprinkle writes this, Posture is crucial in this conversation. As Christians, we already have many strikes against us. We're known for being anti-gay, judgmental, hypocritical, anti-trans, anti-target, anti-this, anti-that. Jesus was against many things, but somehow he had a reputation of being for people. Somehow Jesus was able to have a clear ethical stance to speak out clearly against sin and yet to still draw to himself the very people who were found guilty by his words. How did he do that? I need to show you these statistics from the lar- largest survey ever done on the LGBTQ plus community and religion. First statistic, 83% of those in the LG- LGBTQ plus community grew up in a church environment. Let that just sit on you for a second. Second, of them chose to leave the church after age 18. So they came all the way up through, right in our churches. And here's a difficult statistic to swallow. Only 15% left the church because of the church's beliefs. 
on marriage, sexuality, and gender. They didn't leave because of what we believe. Let's look at the fourth one. According to the survey, relational division from the LGBTQ plus community hasn't been primarily caused by what we believe, but by how we treat and talk to and about LGBTQ plus people. We are not accountable for the choices of others. We are fully accountable for our response to those choices. So if I could boil down a response to go after, what would it be? It would be this. First, listen. Just listen. We are so quick to throw stones at others who sin or struggle differently than we do. Set down your stones and just listen. It's not enough to know what someone is doing. We also need to know why. What are the contributing factors? Only then will we be able to offer the help that they need. The one place where we have to get this right is the church. We must give people hope, help, and love. We've got to do it here. Secondly, love. It's all too easy to vilify the sins or struggles of others, struggling in ways that we do not. Getting furious at this cultural moment will not convince people of our truth. Our truth will not be heard until our grace is felt. Preston Sprinkle writes, The greater apologetic for truth is love. Until people feel like we love them, we will never reach them. Jesus wasn't pro-tax collecting, and yet tax collectors flocked to him, Luke 15.1. Jesus opposed adultery, but he stood up for adulterers, not their behavior, but their humanity. Jesus stood against sin, and yet sinners wanted to be in his presence. The marginalized, the hurting, the shamed and shunned all wanted to be around Jesus. They wanted to go to his church. Do they want to come to yours? You see, we can accept someone as a person without simultaneously affirming their behavior. In love, we can affirm their personhood, the fact that they're an image bearer of God, that they are valued, and that they are loved. In love, however, we cannot affirm their right to deviate from God's design. We cannot affirm the right to undo what God has done, and we cannot affirm superficial solutions to spiritual problems. Thirdly, we can help. 41% of transgender people will attempt suicide. And our churches must be a safe place for people who struggle. We must defend those who are mocked and refuse to be mockers ourselves. Acceptance of a person for their personhood is not affirming their gender identity. Jesus first, gender later. And this is not easy. We're going to need each other's help. We're going to need compassion, and we're going to need to lean in to listen and learn and love people. But we cannot do it without each other's help, and we cannot do it without the power of God. So would you pray with me as we move to close the service? God, we, we want to look and act and treat people the way that Jesus did and the way that he would if he were us. 
And I recognize my, many of my shortcomings in this, both in understanding and approach. And I'm asking you that you do an amazing work that we would, you would help us each, as Jesus said, to remove the plank out of our own eye before we attempt to remove the speck out of someone else's. Help us to be humble. Help us to be compassionate. Help us to be clear and help us to be compelling because that's, that's how Jesus was. Give us courage and confidence to do and to say what we need to do and to say, but in a way that helps. In Jesus' name we pray.